0: Mark, thank you for sitting down with us. We appreciate uh, your time and a, a new book. It seems like it's a a very timely one in the nation, but also will be of high interest to South Dakota uh, um, readers. And it's hard to know where to start because this is really looking at a 1980 election, the defeat of George McGovern is how most people in South Dakota will remember it. But we need to go back a bit to understand the context of this back to Barry Goldwater and some other events. Take us back before we um, reach the 80s or the late 70s and, and, and 1980 um, and, and tell us why we need to start there.
1: Well, thank you, Lori, for the opportunity to visit with you. Um, Yes, you're exactly right. We have to go back at least to the early 1960s. And it's a moment, I think, in history, a moment in time for conservative politics in the United States that is not unlike the moment we're in right now, where the party is really struggling to kind of define what it's all about. And that was certainly happening in the early 1960s. Barry Goldwater, of course, the Arizona senator, very conservative guy wins the party's nomination for president in 1964, and then is just obliterated in a landslide defeat by Lyndon Johnson. Lots of people wrote him off at that point and wrote off the hard right element that he sort of championed and and that championed him. Uh, But the the fight for the soul of the Republican Party continued in the 1960s and into the 1970s. I make the case in my book that That is really the origin of the Republican Party that we have seen emerge over the last decade or so. And a lot of the veterans, if you will, of that Goldwater movement wind up having very prominent roles in Republican and conservative politics in the late 1970s, and particularly in this kind of what I think of as a culminating period, this 1980 election, where several things came together at the same time. That were kind of difficult to see at the time, kind of difficult to understand. But with the perspective of looking back on it for 40 years now, you can see that some really important things kind of came together to create a hinge moment in the development of the modern Republican Party.
0: When you say hard right, uh, uh, let's be more specific with some of Goldwater's policies, including his relationship to actual white white supremacy and white supremacists. This is not, this is no joke.
1: Right, he, he was, uh, he opposed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, was one of uh, Republican voters, a Republican vote in the Senate against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, he, he said that it was unconstitutional. Um, he, I would have trouble making the case that he himself was an overt racist in the way that some uh, Southern Democrats, frankly, were in that period but he certainly was not sympathetic to the civil rights movement. And he attracted to him and his campaign uh, certain uh, fringe elements on the conservative hard right uh, of the country that really championed his cause, the John Birch Society, uh, which has become back in the news uh, this many years later as uh, being uh, having sort of a resurgence. Uh, he, was, he was not certainly openly courting Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, but uh, white supremacist Southerners uh, were certainly sympathetic to his presidential campaign and because uh, largely because the Democratic Party began to embrace civil rights in in the early 1960s and passed with Lyndon Johnson's prodding the Civil Rights Act in 1964, uh, a number of Southern states sort of defected and permanently defected, as it turns out, uh, from the democratic coalition that existed for so long. And so Goldwater's at the cutting edge of creating this new sort of nationalistic, uh, populist Republican Party. And I argue in the book that that carried over into the 1970s. And a lot of the folks who believed as he did, uh, in essence, wound up taking over the Republican Party.
0: I want to talk about um, let's introduce this National Conservative Political Action Committee and some of the key players and what's motivating them to start a new way of operating, a new way of fundraising, a new way of sort of punching to the throat with uh, their uh, their messaging. Uh, who, who are how do how do they begin? Because some of these names are really familiar to us now.
1: Right, well there were three principal organizers of the National Conservative Political Action Committee in 1975. All were young uh, Republican conservative activists. Uh, The face of the organization uh, eventually became a guy by the name of Terry Dolan, uh, born in New Jersey, very active in the college Republican movement as a young guy. He joined with two other uh, Republican activists, conservative activists, uh, Charlie Black, who is still around in Washington D.C., is a pretty uh, powerful, influential lobbyist who worked in the Reagan administration later, and a guy who's been in the news a lot the last few years, Roger Stone, who uh, was a self de- is a self-described political dirty trickster, became a confidant and advisor to Donald Trump. Uh, eventually, was caught up in the uh, congressional investigation into the Russia. Uh, in, in, interference with uh, the 19, 20, 2016 presidential election, and then of course was uh, had his sentence re- recently commuted but, uh, before President Trump left office. So those three guys are the real organizers of this conservative political action committee in 1975. They had lots of encouragement, uh, primarily from Jesse Helms, the very conservative Republican senator from North Carolina who uh, gave them some uh, i would say sort of credibility with the rest of the of the conser- the real movement conservatives of that period and they also allied very closely with a guy by the name of Richard Viguerie who is also still around viguerie's been called the funding father of the new right he pioneered direct mail fundraising efforts in the 1960s really uh, working for goldwater later working for um, uh, George Wallace, uh, when his in his presidential campaigns, and uh, Vigory became the fundraising guru, so to speak, for the National Conservative Political Action Committee. They really had uh, they they didn't make any secret of what they were out to do. They really wanted to take over the Republican Party, not reform it really, but remake it. And uh, Dolan, for example. Um, was very disdainful of the moderate element in the Republican Party. He wanted to purge moderate Republicans from the party. And I would argue uh, he he was very much at the leading edge of that, but that effort uh, has largely succeeded.
0: They sort of move fast and break things in in this sort of way that seems familiar to people today when you think about, you know, social media companies and how they started different political ideology. But these are young men who uh, don't like the rules and have something to say and are willing to go forth and really leverage their intelligence, their connection, and their big ideas. Do I have that kind of the the sense? You have said that
1: very, very well. And I would say that they understood probably better and earlier than many did that certain things were coming together in this period that they could really uh, uh, make hay with political opinion polling was becoming much more sophisticated. They employed a guy by the name of Arthur Finkelstein, who was a brilliant, by all accounts, a brilliant political pollster. It was easier to do public opinion polling in this period because you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have the internet, you could typically get people at home on their landline telephone, and people were not as skeptical of uh, confiding in pollsters as they have become since. So doing opinion polling was relatively easy. You could get a good sample and it was quite trustworthy. Finkelstein was brilliant in uh, phrasing issues in a way that brought out emotion in those issues. Uh, Somebody uh, was quoted, I quote someone in the book as saying that he could look at a poll and see emotion. And these guys really understood that uh, the most effective political messages almost always involve emotion, anger, resentment, fear, uh, sort of a disdain for the status quo, and they really capitalize that on that. Then you have the ability, thanks to a Supreme Court decision, a pivotal Supreme Court decision in 1976, the Buckley case, that basically opens the, the floodgates, so to speak, for these independent expenditure campaigns to raise and spend unrestricted amounts of money. As long as they were not coordinating with any candidate. So, Nick Pack is able with Vigory's fundraising, uh, Finkelstein's messaging, to reach literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with direct mail, highly emotional uh, messages that really, um, I would say, sort of stirred up a certain element uh, on the conservative right in America, made them uh, more interested in participating and writing checks, if you will, to participate in the political process. One of the consequences of that, and again, why I think 1980 is so important, is that before that election cycle, U.S. Senate races tended to be uh, statewide affairs. Somebody's running for the United States Senate in South Dakota, it's pretty much a decision that focuses on what people in South Dakota are doing. After 1980, during 1980 and after 1980, every United States Senate race became a national race. We saw that recently just profoundly in the Georgia runoff elections. Virtually everybody in the country that was paying attention to politics is focused on who's going to win these Georgia runoff elections because it is absolutely uh, pivotal to who's going to control Uh, majority control of the United States Senate. So Senate elections more and more have become not a question about who necessarily best represents South Dakota or Indiana in the United States Senate, but which party is going to control the Senate on a national level. So that happened also as a result, I think, of 1980. So they were focused very much on these emotional issues, anti-abortion, opposed to the Panama Canal treaties giving away the Panama Canal. Uh, There was a lot of resentment at the time about a financial bailout package that had been engineered for New York City. New York City was facing bankruptcy and the federal government basically uh, came to its financial rescue. And that was cast as the conservative heartland sort of uh, bailing out these liberal elites uh, in New York City. So really emotional, hard-edged issues. Oftentimes, very close to the line or crossing over the line of not being truthful or accurate. And the other thing that uh, Nick Pack was very much focused on was rejecting the whole idea of bipartisanship. Uh, why, why, why try to work with the other party? Uh, we need to outwork them, outthink them, beat them at the ballot box, beat them up in public opinion, uh, and the only way to get uh, where we want the party to get is to uh, essentially demonize the other side. And they were uh, enormously successful in advancing that strategy.
0: There's a couple of things I want to sort of spin out a little bit more. And I want to get to McGovern and that that race specifically. But let's start with their strategy. Um, Start early. It's not nuanced. And it can be straight up dishonest at times. So, outlay their basic strategy and how they kind of come to it, and then let's superimpose that on the McGovern campaign where his vulnerabilities lie. Because some of where they hit him is—he's is, a World War II veteran. It's—it's it's shocking in some ways, um, the things that they attempt to go after. So, strategy first, and then overlay that on the McGovern campaign for us.
1: Well, the strategy was uh, was both uh, simple and brilliant. Number one start really early to redefine these incumbents. And the incumbents that I focus on in the book are George McGovern in South Dakota, Birch Bayh in Indiana, who in 1980 was a three-term Democrat, Uh, John Culver in Iowa, who was the least uh, senior of the four that I focused on uh, just in his first term in the Senate, and Frank Church in Idaho, who was a four-term incumbent, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In each case, Nick Pack and its allies began very early, like in 1979, even early in 1979, to begin to redefine these guys in a way that would, as Dolan kind of proudly said, "We're going to have you voting against these guys, and you won't even remember why." That's almost a direct quote uh, that he gave at the time. So the the attacks began early. These guys are out of step with their state. They're too liberal for their states. Uh, they're uh, become part of the Washington elite, and those ta- attacks just con- continued persistently for months and months, even before uh, the incumbent Democrats uh, were even thinking that they were sort of in an election, reelection cycle. And uh, it really eroded the favorability ratings of these guys. One of the benefits of being able to go back 40 years is in McGovern's papers, for example, or Frank Church's papers. You can see the public opinion polling that they were doing for the campaigns and in every case these incumbents started with high levels of public approval in their states but by the time the election really began in earnest in 1980 their uh, approval ratings had been denigrated to such a point that their uh, conservative challengers were really within striking distance of making it a campaign as each did yeah
0: before you even knew what was hitting you it was already Hitting you, yeah, And it,
1: and the, the pernicious nature of it was not only the starting early, but uh, the attacks from a sort of a nameless, faceless, out-of-state group that it was really difficult to hit back against. Uh, and different tactics were used, different strategies were used by the incumbents to try to counter this, but none of them worked very well because it was really difficult. I mean, you can, if your opponent is Taking a shot at you, you can say, well, you know, Congressman X is is incorrect about that and he should know better for the following reason. When you're dealing with a kind of uh, nameless, faceless committee headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, that is bombing into the state with radio and television and newspaper ads, news releases, direct mail, it's pretty hard to identify who is actually behind this, what their motives are, who's paying for it. Uh, Etc. So it became a real difficult thing to counterattack, and in fact, uh, you could almost argue that the counterattacks that were mounted by McGovern and Church and others uh, served to reinforce the negative message that Nick Pack was peddling. So if you went back and tried to correct the record, you were almost, uh, by nature, highlighting uh, the allegation that you were considering that the incumbents considered to be so unfair
0: the nebulous nature of of this and you mentioned independent expenditure campaign it, talk to me about how that fits into campaign finance limitations and this whole notion that they're not campaigning for the opponent they're just campaigning against um somebody else and but they can't have contact with the opponent and that's really important in the south dakota race because it appears that those rules are even violated um, but it's very hard to prove. Explain that a little bit for our listeners.
1: Yes, uh, in the uh, in the early 1970s, Congress passed a federal uh, election campaign finance finance act, which uh, attempted to rein in some of the excesses, frankly, of this burgeoning uh, uh, political action committee movement in the country. And then, in the post Watergate period, there were some additional reforms put in place to require greater financial disclosure of uh, donors and that sort of thing. One of the things that is so uh, difficult to track is the vast amounts of money that are being spent in these campaigns. Again, again, to use the Georgia analogy most recently, uh, something like $450 million in independent committee expenditures were made in those two runoff elections. Well, for the average voter, how do you figure out who's actually behind that money. You can spend hours, and I've tried, uh, digging through the Federal Election Commission records about who's really supporting which effort. And there are so many different layers of uh, political action committees giving to other committees and individuals giving to a political action committee that then gives to a nonprofit that can conceal its money, so-called dark money. So it becomes a, a vicious web that is in no way Uh, Comports with the idea that uh, voters should have information about who is supporting candidates or who's opposing candidates. And again, that's a fixture of this 1980 cycle where these uh, rules get really, really muddled. Uh, The Buckley decision made it clear that an independent expenditure campaign uh, could raise and expend uh, unlimited amounts of money as long as there was not coordination with another campaign. But I think I, uh, at least circumstantially, demonstrate in the book that there was a lot of coordination between these various campaigns in these various states. Between Nick Pack and the Republican conservative challengers, uh, it, they did a pretty good job of hiding it. And as you suggest, Lori, it was very difficult to try to prove. I think pretty much everybody who observed those races at the time, and I talked to a number of them, said, yeah, you could really. Uh, sense that there was a level of coordination taking place. It was just uh, impossible to prove. Actually, the South Dakota Democratic Party did prove uh, that there had been coordination between Nick Pack, uh and the campaign for then Congressman Jim Abner, uh, took that uh, appeal all the way to the Federal Elections Commission. The FEC staff uh, wrote a quite a blistering report on the level of coordination between this so-called independent campaign run by Nick Pack and Abner's own Senate campaign. And then the uh, full commission refused to provide any sanction for the Abner campaign. So it sort of defeated the whole purpose of saying that there should be some sanction if these coordination uh, rules were violated
0: what was abner's take on all this or his relationship with it it's, i get the sense that there was a great discomfort for him and maybe not a full grasp on exactly what was happening in the in the grand scheme of you know what this means for the future for example tell me more about that
1: yeah i, I well he he was a little bit all over the map about it on the one hand i i was surprised to learn that uh, he was a, quite a reluctant candidate in 1980. He thought Senator McGovern was uh, generally in pretty good standing, that it would be difficult to beat him, that he might have trouble winning a Republican primary. But em- eventually, he emerged as the candidate. Um, and he emerged with considerable uh, enthusiasm uh, for his candidacy from Pack. They supplied uh, his campaign with polling information, uh, that indicated that he would be a really strong candidate against McGovern. Um, and there was a there was a real encouragement on the part of Nick pack that he should get into the race. But by the same token, when uh, these independent expenditure efforts became uh, a focus of the public part of the campaign, uh, he really wanted to disavow any connection, said that they were, uh, muddying the water for voters, making it difficult to run his own campaign the way he wanted to run it. Again, one of the pernicious uh, aspects of these independent campaigns is that they could do this kind of nefarious, uh, nasty, hit job type campaigning. And the person who was benefiting from it, in this case, the Republican challengers tended to be able to say, well, that's not me. That's not my campaign. I'm separate from that but they could benefit at the same time from uh, having those effective attacks being launched against their opponents. So um, yeah, I think uh, Jim Abner in South Dakota, Dan Quayle, who won the Senate race in Indiana against Birch Bayh in 1980, uh, Steve Sims in South Dakota, or in uh, Idaho, I should say, against Frank Church, all sort of disavowed Pack. said, we don't want anything to do with these guys. But again, it's sort of having your cake and eating it, too, being able to disavow the effort, but at the same time benefit from the fact that these guys are beating the crap out of your opponent. Hmm.
0: So McGovern says in 1979 that the future of the country is at stake here. What does he see as this starts to unfold that gives him the, the knowledge that, um, in his opinion at least, there's a whole lot more at stake than just whether George McGovern will go back to Washington?
1: I think, uh, I think all of these guys, and McGovern and uh, John Culver in Iowa were perhaps the most uh, eloquent about uh, talking about it, saw that this uh, sort of um, emotional, anger-driven, grievance-driven politics was really going to, number one, change the nature of politics in America and uh, profoundly change the way the Senate uh, approached its business. So uh, all of these guys are, I would say, were institutionalists when it comes to the Senate. They had a real reverence for the place as, as an institution where you know, bipartisanship was to be uh, strived for, not always uh, successfully attained. But there was a real sense that to get things done in the good, for the good of the country, you had to come together on really big things and work together. Civil rights, Vietnam. Uh, the issues that had dominated the 1960s and on into the 1970s. Um, We think of that, those uh, two decades, particularly the 60s, as being very contentious times, and they were. Uh, You know, student unrest on campus, uh, great concern about the war in Vietnam, civil rights protests, assassinations. But at the same time, the Senate accomplished a tremendous amount uh, of lasting import for the country. Passage of the civil rights bill, uh, Medicare was created, um, public radio and public television were authorized. So, immense amount of uh, good was done for the country in that period, even though the, the political climate was really uh, quite, uh, uh, quite nasty in many respects. But that sense of bipartisanship, that sense that you know, a George McGovern could, from South Dakota could work with a Republican like Bob Dole from Kansas and create the food stamp program, for example. That Birch By could work on, on a bipartisan basis uh, to create legislation uh, to make it possible for colleges and universities uh, to, to uh, have patents on, in, on inventions that were uh, created as part of academic research that Frank Church could work across the aisle with John Sherman Cooper, a Republican from Kansas or from Kentucky, uh, to try to uh, bring about an end to the war in Vietnam. Uh, So there was a real sense of this kind of reverence for the institution. And I think McGovern in particular, John Culver in particular, said, you know, it's going to make it really difficult to work across the aisle if we let every one of these campaigns become a, a death grudge match between the parties. Uh, that there is just not going to be much basis for cooperation if that's the way we're going to conduct ourselves politically.
0: And in many ways, you could argue he was right that <laughs> it's very different. Yeah, I would
1: argue he is very—he very much was right that the Senate has changed a lot. You know, one of the big issues in the late 1970s that carried on into these 80 campaigns was the effort to uh, ratify the Panama Canal treaties the effort to return sovereignty of the Panama Canal to Panama, an issue that dated back to at least uh, the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower. Every president from Eisenhower to Jimmy Carter, who finally signed the Panama Canal treaties, uh, advocated for uh, the return of the canal sovereignty to Panama, in part because tens of thousands of American military personnel were stationed in Panama Uh, not just to protect the canal, but to protect the canal from Panama, (laughs) Panamanians. uh, real concern that, you know, this uh, canal, uh, operations of the canal would be jeopardized because there was such unrest about the United States uh, essentially controlling this vital uh, resource in a sovereign nation. So, the canal treaties pass on a bipartisan basis. One of the biggest supporters on the Republican side was Howard Baker, the Republican leader of the Senate from Tennessee, but it passed on a bipartisan basis. But Richard Vigory, Terry Dolan, these uh, leading lights of the new right, really saw this as a powerful emotional issue that could be weaponized in a way to go after these incumbents who had supported uh, the treaty, and of course, all of these Democrats supported the treaty. And it, they pounded on it for year after year, even though, even though the issue was gone and decided, they continued to pound on it uh, as a very divisive issue in these 1980 elections. Um, the irony, of course, is that 40 years on, the United States has had uh, quite good relations with Panama. Uh, the Panama Canal has been enlarged and improved under Panamanian sovereignty. It's not been an issue where we have to worry about the operations of the canal. The people who who pre, pre, uh, predicted that the United States, in essence, doing the right thing and returning sovereignty to Panama, would uh, ensure the long-term success of the canal, have been proven right. Uh, they got uh, kicked around pretty badly on a political basis for doing that in uh, the late 1970s and 1980. The
0: the the cry to insult somebody for wanting to give away the canal sounds in its messaging. It has a cleanliness or a clarity to it that a build the wall campaign does or something that's just so, so talk just a little bit about just the, the the hyper focus on one issue that maybe is, is way more complex than three or four words, but how do we see that today, that kind of messaging and that, uh, you know, um, the the focus of it still being a really successful political tool to get votes in spite of it really, by and large, being an incredibly complex topic that can't be summed up in three or four words.
1: Right. Uh, you know, give away the Panama Canal fits on a bumper sticker. Uh, baby killer fits on a bumper sticker. McGovern and Church uh, Birch Bay were all accused of being baby killers because in some cases, they had a pretty nuanced position on uh, abortion. Frank Church, for example, in Idaho, long uh, called himself a uh, an anti-abortion Democrat, a pro-life Democrat. His position was essentially the same as the Mormon church position on uh, abortion. But uh, he was attacked for being uh, unwilling to write uh, support an anti-abortion amendment to the US Constitution. Same issue with uh, Senator McGovern in South Dakota. So um, a, very emo- a very emotional issue, a very complicated issue, a nuanced issue that can be um, reduced to just a handful of words made to be uh, the focus of grievance or anger on the part of people who are receiving that message And it can be a very, very powerful thing. And I think it has become the essence of political messaging uh, today. It is the essence, uh, I would argue, of Republican messaging today. There's there's an anger and a grievance in so much of the dialogue that you hear uh, from Republican members of Congress about all kinds of things. Um, And public policy, with all due respect to people on the political right, is a complicated business. you know, determining healthcare policy or energy policy or transportation policy is not a simple matter. It's not e- able to, you're not able to reduce it to, you know, a catchy slogan. Or if you do, uh, you simplify it to the point of distortion. And that's what happened with a lot of these issues that were uh, too complicated to be treated in such a cavalier fashion.
0: I wanted to ask you, and this isn't something that you particularly covered in your book, but I'm curious to hear your opinion on it, and that is the role of the media as an opponent. When we talk about um, a strategy of really starting early, I think of Governor Kristi Noem in South Dakota, who lately has been, you know, very vocal about how the media treats her. And sometimes I think if she had an opponent for governor <laughs> in 2022, she would have someone else to talk about. Um, but it seems sometimes like the the media or journalists are the opponent, the political opponent, the enemy. How, that, how does the media and journalistic coverage sort of evolve during this time that we're seeing the results of today?
1: Well, that is a, that is a wonderful and profound question that I think a lot of us who care about uh, journalism and the future of information that allows people to make political decisions, informed political decisions, are really uh, worried about, frankly. Um, and again, I see some of the seeds of this sort of uh, the journalism being the uh, enemy of politicians in this 1980 period. Um, one of the news organizations that was most aggressive in covering Pack and its uh, tactics was the Idaho Statesman newspaper in Boise, Idaho, the capital city of Idaho, where I lived for a long time. And uh, that became actually became an issue in the campaign. Uh, Nick Pack had uh, bumper stickers uh, printed up that said, I'm voting for Steve Sims, the statesman made me do it, as though uh, the newspaper was part of, uh, you know, the discussion of the, po- of the political campaign. So um, that was maybe an early indicator of the fact that there's a market for at least some people in American politics uh, to make hay by attacking Uh, the messenger, so to speak, the person, or people, or institutions that are trying to uh, provide uh, insight into what's going on, to provide accountability to people in public office, uh, and, you know, easy to make them the target of these kinds of attacks. Uh, I think it's enormously dangerous. Um, I think it's requiring a new level of engagement on the part of so many uh, journalists and news organizations, who have to uh, tiptoe through this minefield of trying to provide a, uh, a solid, fact-based, uh, as objective as they possibly can be, assessment of issues and personalities, and at the same time being the focus a lot of times of attacks by those very same personalities. So it's an enormously complicated thing. For a long time, and I was guilty of this as a reporter myself, I think uh, journalists for a long time uh, thought of covering politics as a, as a he said, she said kind of uh, story, that you report on what candidate A says and then you get candidate B's response to that. That kind of reporting, it seems to me, is really woefully inadequate these days because it just does not get to the essence of what is really happening most of the time. So I see some, some real changing uh, of that approach uh, to do more fact checking, to do more um, sort of uh, analysis of what people are saying and compare it to positions that they've taken in the past, and I think that's all to the good. Um, at the same time, uh, I, can ima- I can only imagine what uh, folks in your position, Lori and others are are feeling when, uh, you know, you become the focus of the story, so to speak, as opposed to the policy or the politician being the focus of the story.
0: Um, Independents are the fastest growing political party in South Dakota, I'm sure that's not a unique story nationwide, as some, at least some of those people who are making that decision are um, frustrated with this kind of lack of bipartisanship or this divisive campaigning. Is there a change on the horizon? Are we just going to be dealing with uh, the kind of legacy of some of these independent expenditure campaigns for the foreseeable future?
1: Well, um, you know, I certainly hope so. I I try to be an optimist about this, um, but uh, seeing the last four years particularly, and maybe the last decade before that uh, in particular, it's hard to be uh, terribly optimistic that a resilient democracy uh, continues to be resilient when you have as much discord and uh, disdain for facts and basic uh, information as we seem to have right now. You know, when I uh, submitted this book to the publisher, University of Oklahoma Press, a great uh, academic press, by the way, and not just because they publish my books, but a really great organization. Uh, the editor suggested, you know, that the subtitle of the book ought to be The Radicalization of the Republican Party. And I thought, well, maybe that's going too far. You know, uh, I had suggested something like the decline of American democracy. And they, they argued that, no, you, you've really told the story here of how a political party had systematically become radicalized over the last 40 years. And I've thought about that, particularly since the events of January 6th at the nation's capital when um, you know you see this, it's almost hard to believe still to me, you see these incredible scenes of uh, uh, an insurrectionist mob, uh, m- many of them supporting white supremacist viewpoints, militia viewpoints, storming the Congress of the United States to try to stop the certification of a free and fair election that in state after state, had been certified by local election officials, had been reviewed by judges at every level. And uh, to think that some people in the Republican Party uh, are now being condemned by their followers for saying uh, the person who incited those mobs should be held to account, uh, makes me, uh, gives me pause as to whether we can claw our way out of this cul-de-sac that we seem to find ourselves in. So I don't think radicalization is too big big a word uh, to use with what has happened to the GOP in so many ways. The embrace of the big lie that uh, the election was somehow stolen from uh, a Republican president, it really does harken back to some of the big lies that were told in the 1980 campaign against these incumbent Democratic senators. Um, So it's not, in my mind, it's not hard to see where the kind of grievance-driven, fear-driven, anger-driven politics of the 1980 campaign winds up uh, with blood being spilled on the steps of the United States Capitol.
0: The book is called Tuesday Night Massacre. The author is Mark Johnson. Thank you so much for spending time with us uh, today. We really appreciate it.
1: Laurie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.